0: working through the book of 1 and 2 Samuel, so would you take your Bibles and would you open up to 1 Samuel? We're going to be looking at 1 Samuel chapter 7 and chapter 8 this morning. So the sermon text this morning is 1 Samuel chapter 7, verse 2, and we're going to read all the way through chapter 8, verse 2. So hear the word of God. Chapter 7, verse 2. From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath-Jerim, a long time passed, some twenty years, and all the house of Israel lamented after the Lord. And Samuel said to all the house of Israel, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtaroth from among you. And direct your heart to the Lord and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So the people of Israel put away the balls and the Ashtaroth, and they served the Lord only. And Samuel said, Gather all Israel at Mizpah, and I will pray to the Lord for you. So they gathered at Mizpah and drew water and poured it out before the Lord and fasted on that day and said there, We have sinned against the Lord. And Samuel judged the people of Israel at Mizpah. Now when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. And when the people of Israel heard of it, they were afraid of the Philistines. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, Do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. So Samuel took a nursing lamb and offered it as a whole burnt offering to the Lord. And Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel, and the Lord answered him, As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel. But the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion. And they were defeated before Israel. And the men of Israel went out from Mizpah and pursued the Philistines and struck them as far as below beth Then Samuel took a stone and set it up between Mizpah and Shen and called its name Ebenezer, for he said, Till now the Lord has helped us. So the Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel. And the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. The cities that the Philistines had taken from Israel were restored to Israel, from Ekron to Gath, and Israel delivered their territory from the hand of the Philistines. And there was peace also between Israel and the Amorites. And Samuel judged Israel all the days of his life, and he went on a circuit year by year to Bethel, Gilgal, and Mizpah. And he judged Israel in all these places. Then he would return to Ramah, for his home was there, and there also he judged Israel. And he built there an altar to the Lord. When Samuel became old, he made his sons judges over Israel. The name of his firstborn son was Joel, and the name of his second, Abijah, and they were judges in Beersheba. Yet his sons did not walk in his ways, but turned aside after gain. They took bribes and perverted justice. He said, These will be the ways of the king who shall reign over you. He will take your sons and appoint them to his chariots and to be his horsemen and to run before his chariots. He will appoint for himself commanders of thousands and commanders of fifties and some to plow his ground and to to reap his harvest and to make his implements of war and the equipment of his chariots. He will take your daughters to be perfumers and cooks and bakers. He will take the best of your fields and the vineyards and the olive orchards and give them to his servants. But there shall be a king over us, that we also may be like all the nations, and that our king may judge us and go out before us and fight our battles. And when Samuel heard all the words of the people, he repeated them in the ears of the Lord. And the Lord said to Samuel, Obey their voice and make them a king. Samuel then said to the men of Israel, Go every man, go every man to his city. Oh, Father, we do ask that you would bless the reading and the preaching of your word amen do not think that i have come to bring peace to the earth i have not come to bring peace but a sword jesus said those words are from the gospel of matthew chapter 10 verse 34 and what jesus is telling us is he's telling us about his gospel his gospel his preaching is divisive. And you can think about this in his ministry. Jesus' preaching made some people exceptionally happy as he proclaimed the gospel to them, and, and some people were made exceptionally mad, mad enough to murder Jesus. And what made Jesus' preaching so divisive, sharp like a sword, was this. He allowed no middle ground. He allowed no fence sitting. He only colored with black and white. Either you acknowledge him as the Messiah, the King, Or you rebel against him. And as you think about it, this is how the gospel is preached throughout the scriptures. It's always proclaimed in the starkest of terms. It always comes down between a choice of life and death, between salvation and calamity, between light and darkness, between sin and righteousness. And every time the gospel is preached, it forces a choice upon us. It's pressing us Will you this day choose salvation? Or will you have a portion in destruction? Will you this day enter into life, or will you remain in death? And as we turn our attention to First Samuel chapter seven and chapter eight, we find that the gospel sword of Jesus has been drawn in these two chapters. We find two choices presented to Israel in this text. They can live by faith, or they can walk in unbelief. Faith in unbelief. Now, as we think about chapters 7 and 8, we have to understand that these two chapters cover a huge swath of biblical history. In these two chapters, we essentially get the whole life and ministry of Samuel. So, in chapter 7, we find the beginning of Samuel's ministry. And Samuel's ministry starts off with a big bang. We find him presiding over this great religious revival in the land of Israel. And we find Samuel preaching to Israel. And what happens? Well, the people of God listen to his preaching. They obey it. And not only do we find a religious revival in chapter 7, but we find this great victory over the Philistines. A victory that has lasting consequences. And so the Scriptures are careful to point out the success of Samuel's ministry to us. Chapter 7, verse 13. The Philistines were subdued and did not again enter the territory of Israel, and the hand of the Lord was against the Philistines all the days of Samuel. So there's chapter 7, and then we have chapter 8, and when we enter into chapter 8, we find Samuel at the end of his ministry to Israel. We are told in the text that Samuel is old, old enough apparently that he had to pass off some of his duties of leadership to his two sons. But Samuel's age is not the only change that we find in chapter 8. It's clear that Samuel's ministry is coming to an end, and the text makes clear, painfully so, that the end of Samuel's ministry is going to be disappointing and troubling. And so we see in chapter 8, Samuel is met with massive disappointment. The elders of Israel draw near to Samuel and call for a meeting. And as we listen to this meeting between Samuel and the elders, we learn that that these elders are sick of Samuel's leadership. In fact, we learn something more troubling. Really, these men are sick of the Lord their God. So as we think about chapter 7 and chapter 8, the passage moves from extreme to extreme. In chapter 7, we find Samuel in the prime of his ministry. Then in in chapter 8, we find him Old. In chapter 7, we find Samuel offering hope to a beleaguered nation. In chapter 8, we find him disappointed. In chapter 7, we find Israel returning to the Lord and receiving covenant blessings. And in, in chapter 8, we find Israel turning away from the Lord and, and threatening their very covenant identity as the people of God. And as we think about all of these extremes and all the change we see between chapter 7 and chapter 8, there's something that holds these two chapters together the choice between faith and unbelief. And it's our job to dig into both of these chapters. And so what we're going to do this morning is we're going to look at chapter 7 as a unit, and then we're going to move into chapter 8 as a unit. And as we look and as we study these texts, we need to be asking all sorts of questions. We're going to be asking questions like these, "Well, well, what is faith? What is unbelief? What does does faith produce? What does unbelief produce? Why would anyone hate faith? Why would anyone choose unbelief? So we're going to be working in the text by asking these questions. And the hope is that in the midst of our work in the text of Scripture, that we would hear the call of the Lord because He's going to be calling us. He's going to call us to faith. And our hope is not only that we'd hear the call of the Lord, but that we would experience the the work of the Lord in our hearts, that he would turn our hearts towards Jesus and the freedom that he offers us. So let's start with chapter 7. So in chapter 7, we get to see what the choice of faith is all about. So we're picking up the story, and the ark has come back to Israel. That's what happened at the end of chapter 6. And though the ark has come back to Israel, we realize that Israel is still a mess. They're yet controlled, they're yet harassed, they're yet helpless before the Philistines, they yet have stubborn and rebellious hearts, they don't want to serve the Lord, they don't want to live with the Lord. Chapter 6 ends with these, these words, and they ought to ring in our ears. The men of Beth Shemesh say this, who is able to stand before the Lord, this holy God, And to whom shall he go up away from us? Chapter 6 ends into chapter 7 by Israel sending away the ark of the Lord. But there's good news here because God is working in this mess. And we see his work in chapter 7, verse 2. Look there with me. The text says, From the day that the ark was lodged at Kiriath Jerem a long time passed, some 20 years, and all the house of Israel lamented after, after the Lord. So we have to pay attention to what the Lord is doing here. He doesn't intervene right away. Israel is a mess. He's not like this over anxious parent who, who loves to helicopter over his children. A child makes a mess, and, and then the parent just has to fix it right away. Rather, what does the Lord do here in chapter 7? Well, he lets his people sit in their folly and in their sin, and he lets them sit there for a long time, some 20 years. He lets this whole mess just fester. And after 20 years, he begins a new work of grace among them. And so there's Samuel. And Samuel detects that God is working among the people. He can see the fruit of God's work. And so Samuel comes on the scene, and he starts to press them in his preaching. He wants them to make a decision. Verse 3, Samuel says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart, then put away the foreign gods and the Ashtoreth from among you, and direct your heart to the Lord, and serve him only, and he will deliver you out of the hand of the Philistines. So you have to love Samuel's preaching. He gets to the point. It's straightforward. It's clear. He makes two demands upon Israel. And if these demands are met, he provides them with a promise. So first of all, Israel must put away all foreign gods. That's simple. It's straightforward. Second, Israel must serve the Lord exclusively. We have to pay attention to how Samuel speaks to these people. Because he focuses in on a certain matter. He focuses in on the heart. Listen to Samuel. He says, If you are returning to the Lord with all your heart. And then he says, Direct your heart to the Lord. And that's important to meditate on because what Samuel has in mind is not some political move here. He's not preaching to Israel, cast your vote for Yahweh. What Samuel has in mind isn't some small ordeal. Just rearrange the furniture in your your living room. Rearrange the chairs in the sanctuary. That's not what Samuel has in mind. He is is thinking about this change that needs to take place, and it has to involve the, the whole man. What Samuel calls for is a work that touches the very inner recesses of the soul. The Lord must have Israel's heart He must be their prize. He must be their joy, their passion, their confidence, their comfort, their very rock. And so with this call comes a gracious promise. If Israel will put away these foreign gods, if Israel will direct their heart to the Lord, if Israel will live by faith, what's the Lord going to do? He's going to save them. He's going to free them from their enemies so Samuel preaches to the people of God. He preaches his simple sermon and the people listen to him. But we have to understand that Samuel is just not a preacher. He's also a leader and he's a, a shrewd leader. And so what he does is he presses this moment of tender conscience in the people of God. He te- presses this moment for spiritual advantage. And so he calls Israel to make a public assembly and corporately bind themselves to the Lord. And what we find next is inspiring. All of Israel gathers together. All of Israel commits their way to the Lord. All of Israel fast and all of Israel begins to confess their sins. They say in chapter 7, verse 6, we have sinned against Yahweh. And As we think about this, we've been in the book for quite a few Sundays now, and we've witnessed all sorts of scenes We have to say this is the most encouraging thing we've come upon in the book of 1 Samuel so far. We have sinned against the Lord. Israel should have said this four chapters ago. But finally they're saying it now. And so we're encouraged because we see mass repentance, we see mass revival, we see mass obedience, and it seems that Israel finally is doing everything right. They're living before the Lord as the Lord desires them to. But the story moves on, and as the story moves on, the Lord inserts himself into the story. And the Lord inserts himself into the story to test the faith of his people. That's what takes place in verse 7. Look there with me. Now, when the Philistines heard that the people of Israel had gathered at Mizpah, the lords of the Philistines went up against Israel. So we've got a tension point here. Israel's turning towards the Lord, and all of a sudden this, this test happens, the, the Philistines get this information, and they assemble their armies, and now they're drawing near to this assembly of Israel. And as readers, we ask, well, what's going to happen? Israel's found faith, but are they going to keep faith? Are they going to turn to the Lord? Are they going to cry out to them? Are they going to trust in Him? Or is their faith going to melt? Are they going to turn away? Well, we find an answer in verse 8. And the people of Israel said to Samuel, do not cease to cry out to the Lord our God for us, that he may save us from the hand of the Philistines. And this is a remarkable change. Because the arrogance of Israel is gone, their presumption is gone, the manipulation is gone. Just a few chapters ago, we remember that they were trying to manipulate the Lord by taking the ark, But all of that is gone. They've been humbled in their hearts and they urge Samuel to to seek the Lord on their behalf. And the Lord hears them. The Lord hears Samuel and he comes. Verse 9, verse 10. Samuel cried out to the Lord for Israel and the Lord answered him. As Samuel was offering up the burnt offering, the Philistines drew near to attack Israel, but the Lord thundered with a mighty sound that day against the Philistines and threw them into confusion, and they were defeated before Israel. Now we have to picture verses 9 and 10 in our minds because the, set, the, the text sets this scene in a very particular way. So just think about this. That the Philistines are drawing close to Israel, and they're not just drawing close for a visit their battle lines have been formed. They're ready for war. You can think about it. Their, their weapons are brandished. Their swords, their spears, their shields, their bows, they're ready to go and kill. The text tells us that about the Philistines. But what does the text tell us about Israel as we're picturing this scene in our mind? Here comes the Philistines, they're ready for war. They're drawing up to the battle lines. Well, the text doesn't tell us anything about Israel's weapons. Or Israel's soldiers. Rather, all we hear about Israel is this Samuel makes an offering to the Lord, Samuel cries out to the Lord, and then the Lord comes down and he thunders. The text sets us up to be thinking about this in a very particular way. And do you see what the text is teaching us? Israel's defense is not a sword or a shield or a well-executed battle plan or a host of soldiers. Rather, it is this. Israel's defense is a humble sacrifice and a desperate prayer to a holy and sovereign God. Think about this. How does Samuel fight against the Philistines? He doesn't fight as a general, commanding his troops here and there. Rather, he fights against the Philistines as a worshiper of God. He offers up gifts and prayers, and then God comes down and he defeats the invaders. And 1 Samuel chapter 7 is giving us a vivid picture of what faith is, true biblical faith. What is faith? Faith at its core is this radical dependence upon God. A dependence so radical that when the enemy draws near up to battle, you don't pick up your sword or your shield or your bow. Rather, you go with Samuel and you offer up a sacrifice to the Lord and you call out to him with the cry of faith. In fact, as we think about this very scene, we start to understand the very mission of the church. The church is in a war. Christ, our captain, has sent us out into battle, and we are fighting against the godless nations. And how do we wage our war? How do we fight our battles? Well, we fight them not with swords or spears. Rather, we fight our battles by gathering together and offering up a a praise of thanksgiving. We offer up a, a sacrifice of thanksgiving, and we cry out to God in prayer. And this is how Christ advances His kingdom in this present age. His people gather and they offer up praise and worship, and they call upon him, and then he comes down, and he wins the battles. And so in chapter 7, we start to learn about faith. And now we need to transition into chapter 8. And as we transition into chapter 8, we need to set the, the stage with a question. Why would anyone ever hate faith? Or another question, why would anyone want to turn away from what is taking place in 1 Samuel chapter 7? And this is something we have to give careful thought to because as chapter 7 comes to a close, the fruit of faith is evident. The text wants us to know what faith has brought. Verse 13, we see that the Philistines are subdued and they no longer harass Israel. Verse 14, we we see that Israel has reclaimed lost territory Even more, we learn that there's there's peace in the land. Finally, there's peace. What do we see? Faith brings freedom. As these people turn their hearts to God, God gives them freedom. And as we think about it, this is good, really good, especially as we we consider Israel's history and troubles. We've seen Israel's history in the book of 1 Samuel. They've been enslaved to the Philistines, they've been troubled by them. Now they're free. And we can broaden out our gaze even more if you consider the book of Judges because in the book of Judges, Israel's enslaved again and again and again to foreign peoples. But here they're finally free. And so we ask, well, why would anyone turn away from this? Why would anyone grow discontent with this? Why would anyone hate this? Well, chapter 8 gives us an answer. So in chapter 8 the story hits the fast forward button. In chapter 8 Samuel's old and the leaders of Israel are unhappy. They're very unhappy. And their unhappiness is tied to the future. So these men are wise enough to understand that that Samuel's getting old and because Samuel's getting old he's going to die. And they've been watching Samuel's sons. He put them in charge over Israel in certain places in the land. And they've watched their ministries and they've realized that these men are taking bribes and they're perverting justice. And so these men come to Samuel and they make a demand of him. Chapter 8, verse 5. They say, appoint for us a king to judge us like all the nations. Obviously, this does not make Samuel happy. This is an affront to his prophetic office. The Lord has set him apart to do this work, and and now they're trying to get rid of him. This is an affront to his own integrity. He's been a man of God. He has served Israel. This hurts. It stings. But as we listen to the story, we realize something deeper is going on, and the Lord makes it clear when the Lord speaks to Samuel. Verses 7 and 8. The Lord says this, They have not rejected you, but they have rejected me from being king over them. According to all the deeds that they have done, from the day I brought them up out of Egypt, even to this day, forsaking me and serving other gods, so they are also doing to you. So, what's going on here? Well, you have to understand the Lord. The Lord can see into the hearts of his people, and he understands this as he looks upon his people. These people, Israel, they are sick of living by faith. They're sick of living low and humble before the Lord. They're sick of crying out for salvation from the Lord. Ultimately, they're sick of living with Yahweh, their king, and the way he's been reigning over them. And because of this, they want a king like the other nations. They, they crave what a king can do for them. They want a man who will go and build an army. They want a man who's going to go acquire all that will keep them safe, chariots and horses and war instruments. They want a leader who's going to be wise and, and give them strategy and a central government to keep them safe. And We have to understand the appeal of this for Israel. A king would provide real and tangible Security. He was balm for the anxious heart. He was a rock of comfort for the fearful. You could see the king and his strength. You could see his armies and his weapons and his throne and his palace and his glory. And because you could see all that the king had, you could start to rest easy. You could say to yourself, oh, self, there's no need to pray so hard anymore. Self, there's no need to wait on the Lord so much anymore. Self, we don't need to cry out with desperation anymore. We have the king, our king, and he has, taken it, he has taken care of everything. And so we ask well, why would Israel forsake faith? Why would they turn away from the Lord? Why would they hate the path of faith? Well, we see the answer right here the way of faith is incredibly difficult. It is so difficult because it allows for no crutches. It prohibits all earthly substitutes. It hems us in on the narrow way. It bids us in the face of our enemies to look to God and only to God. And for sinners like us, just like Israel, it's terrifying to live that way. Just think, Israel was done with it. We did that for a time. The Philistines advanced toward us, and our only defense was to cry out to the Lord, but I can't live like that day by day, year by year, decade by decade. I want some more tangible security in place. That's just not working for my soul anymore. And as we think about this situation that Israel faced, they're terrified by it. They're terrified to live by faith. We learn an important lesson here about sin. The most serious soul-endangering sin is not the indulgence of the flesh. The most serious soul-endangering sin is not the seeking of some illicit pleasure. No, the most dangerous sin you can commit is what you do with your anxiety, your insecurity, and your doubt. You see what Israel did? They were full of anxiety, doubt, and insecurity. And what did they do? They cried out, give us a king like the nations. Give us someone that will save us. And what happens to these people? The Lord says to them, you have rejected me. Israel's anxiety led them to reject the Lord. And the text is asking us, what is your anxiety? What are your doubts? What are your insecurities leading you to do? Are they leading you away from the Lord? And so what's the Lord going to do with these people? Well, what happens next is scary. The Lord gives his people what they want. Look at chapter 8, verse 7. The Lord is speaking to Samuel, and the Lord says this, Obey the voice of the people. And as keen Bible readers, we've heard words like that before. Obey, listen, hear. Remember Deuteronomy chapter 6? They're some of the most important words in, in the Bible. Hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. You shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, dot, 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 dot. And it's the same word there, obey the voice of the people. Israel is called to to listen to God, to obey God, but here everything is turned around and the Lord is saying this to Samuel, obey the voice of the people. And so these people are ruled by their anxiety, their insecurity, their doubts. And so what does the Lord do? Well, he hands them over lock, stock, and barrel to their anxieties, their doubts, and then their insecurities. We have to understand how this is all working out. Israel wants, above all, to preserve their lives. They want to keep what they have safe and secure. They want to keep their children. They want to keep their fields. They want to keep their fortunes. They want to keep their, their slaves. They want to keep their lives. And they don't think that the Lord can do that anymore for them. And so what do they do? They cry out for a king. A king will save us. But they don't understand this. Their cry of unbelief is going to cost them everything. And so Samuel begins to preach to these people because God calls him to. He calls them to warn them about the decision they're about to make. And Samuel's preaching functions like a hammer. His words just come and they beat upon the people. Just listen to how the people would have heard Samuel. Our English translations move the words around, but if you look at the Hebrew, there's a certain word order and it goes like this. Verse 11. Your sons he will take. Verse 13, your daughters, he will take. Verse 14, the best of your fields, he will take. Verse 15, your grain, your wine, he will take. Verse 16, your male servants, your female servants, he will take. Verse 17, your flocks, he will take. You see what Samuel is doing. He's lifting up what is precious to Israel, the things they wanted to keep, their sons, their daughters, their fields, their grain, their wine, their servants, their flocks. And he's lifting it up before them, thing after thing after thing after thing. And he says, he will take, he will take, he will take, he will take this king that you're asking for. And so we see that there's this rhythm to Samuel's preaching. Samuel holds up this thing that's precious, and then he tells what the king's going to do. The king's going to take it. And there's not only a rhythm in Samuel's preaching, but there is a, a crescendo. And it comes in verse 17 and verse 18. Samuel says to the people, you shall be his slaves. You shall be his slaves. And then he says, in that day you will cry out because of your king whom you have chosen for yourselves, but the Lord will not answer you in that day. You see what's happening here? Israel is trying to save all these things. Everything they're trying to save, they're going to lose. The king is not going to bring them salvation or freedom. He's just going to take from them. In fact, Samuel tells them that this king that they're asking for is going to become a pharaoh. And he's going to enslave you and own you and control you. And this whole path of unbelief leads here. The Lord will not answer you. And the text is giving us a warning. And the warning is this. Unbelief always leads to slavery. It always leads to loss. It always leads away from God. And the text wants us to understand this. If you take your anxiety, if you take your insecurity, if you take your doubt to anyone or anything outside of God, that thing or that person you take your anxiety, your doubt, your insecurity to will own you and control you and enslave you. And ultimately, that thing or person will become your Pharaoh. That's what we see taking place here in the text. Samuel comes and he's warning the people of Israel. If you walk down this path of unbelief, you're going to be enslaved to another Pharaoh. Egypt will come into Israel. And the same warning's here for us. If we take our doubts, our insecurities, our anxieties to anyone but God or anything but God, Egypt will come into our hearts and Pharaoh will rule over us. And so there we have both chapter 7 and chapter 8. In chapter 7, Israel's offered the gospel and they seize it and they believe it. They practice faith. And what do they experience? They experience the life giving rule of the Lord, they experience freedom from their enemies. Chapter 8, Israel's offered the gospel again but they reject it because their hearts are filled with unbelief. They cry out for a king and they turn away from the Lord. And I trust that these two chapters of Scripture have been at work this morning. And if you've been listening, they've been doing all sorts of things. They've been pushing on us. They've been preaching in our ears. They've been saying to us, trust in God today. And not only have they been pushing on us and preaching at us, but they've been questioning us. The Scriptures are whispering in our ears, do you really trust God? Like, do do you really trust Him? And they've been encouraging us as well this whole time. They've been saying to us as we've been reading and working through this story, this God can be trusted. He can be. He really can be trusted with your life. And the text has been exposing us. The text comes to us and says, I see who you are. You're just like Israel. You've demanded a king just like them and have rejected the Lord. The text has been warning us too, hasn't it? It's been saying unbelief leads to slavery. If you choose this path, you will have a Pharaoh ruling over you, taking everything you wanted to keep. And so the question we ask as we come to the end of this sermon, what do we do? What do we do with all of this? Well, here's the answer we go to Jesus Christ let's just work this through if you've been exposed by the text of Scripture this morning and the text of Scripture has has shown you that there are these anxieties these fears And they're being fueled by unbelief in your heart. As you read the story of Israel in chapter 8, you see the same thing going on in your own soul, this unbelief. Well, what can you do? Well, you can do this. You can go to Jesus Christ today. You can go to Jesus Christ today knowing this, he will wash you clean with his blood. It's Jesus' delight to forgive sinners. And so if you have a heart of unbelief this morning, take it to Jesus Christ and he will cleanse it. It is his delight to forgive you. Perhaps as you've listened this morning, you've realized that you've asked for a king. You've said to the Lord, I I need a king to rule over me. And you realize now that you're enslaved to the king that you asked for. There's a tyrant king ruling over you and he has taken everything that you wanted to keep. And so what is the answer for you if you are enslaved? Well, the answer is this, go to Jesus Christ today. If you go to Jesus Christ, he will set you free from your Pharaoh. He will break your bonds. He will destroy your slave master. Even more, you will realize that Jesus is a different sort of king. All other kings just take from us They take and they take and they take. But what does Jesus do? He's a different sort of king. He only gives to us. He's given his life to us. And not only does he give his life to us, but he's poured his spirit into our hearts. He's given us everything. Maybe you're fearful today. Maybe you're anxious today. Maybe you're full of insecurity today. We're all dealing with that, aren't we? Well, what's the answer? Go to Jesus Christ today. Jesus is stronger and bigger than anything you are facing in your life. And if you go to Jesus, Jesus will do this for you. He will remind you just how big and strong He is. He will come to you and He will say, I am the Lion of the tribe of Judah. He will come to you and say, "I am the king of the king of kings and the lord of lords." He will say, "All authority on heaven and earth has been given to me." He will say to you, "I am the alpha and the omega, the beginning and the end." He will say to you, "I am the firstborn from the dead. I have the keys to death and Hades. I rule over all things." Jesus will help you in your fear, in your anxiety, in your insecurity. And he will help you by reminding you just how big and strong he is. Perhaps you're just discouraged this morning. We said that the way of faith is difficult, and we, we've seen the difficulty of it. The Philistines are drawing near to Israel. What does Samuel do? He offers up a sacrifice and he prays. It's, it's hard to live in 1 Samuel chapter 7. We get tired. We get worn down. Well, what can we do? Well, we go to Jesus Christ, don't we? What is Jesus going to do? He, he meets us in His mercy and His compassion. And He brings all of His promises to bear upon our souls. He comes to us and He tells us, I will never leave you or forsake you. He comes to us and He he puts strength in our step and He puts steel in our spine so that we can carry on in the way of faith. The way of faith is not meant to be a lonely enterprise. It's to be a walk with Jesus as He comes by our side and He strengthens us. Perhaps you're sitting on the fence this morning. You're wavering. You don't like the coloring of black and white. You want to just shade with gray. Well, what's the answer for you? Well, let's go to Christ. The preciousness of this morning is that Jesus is here and Jesus is preaching through his word. And he bids you this morning, follow me. He bids you this morning, come to me leave behind unbelief, and embrace the way of faith. Better yet, Jesus says, embrace me. So the answer for everything this morning is Jesus. And with that, let's pray. Oh, Father, we are so needy for your word and its work in our lives. And so we do pray, would you work in and through us now. Would your word bear good fruit? Would it prompt faith? Would it bring freedom? We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.